Welcome to the EAU podcast. In this edition, we have Dr. Felix Campos Juanate, a member of the EAU guidelines panel for urethral strictures, discussing diagnosis of urethral strictures and follow up after urethral surgery. How should we evaluate a patient with urethral stricture? First, what we should recommend is having a good interview with our patient. And that would include past medical and surgical history, comorbidities, and current medications. Since most of patients would complain of lower urinary tract symptoms, we have to evaluate them. Assessing the duration and severity of each of voiding symptoms, and as you can guess, weak stream is consistently the most common one, should be mandatory. But interestingly, we should also assess feeling symptoms, like urgency or nocturia, as they are also frequent in patients with urethral strictures. During our interview with our patient, we should also try to know the etiology of the stricture. Asking him about perineal kicks or phallastride injuries in patients with valvary strictures is highly relevant, as traumatic strictures are usually associated with a higher degree of spongiofibrosis. And this might have consequences in our surgical plan. But also asking for prior endoscopic procedure as transurethral resections or BPH vaporizations or enucleations are important too. Even apparently straightforward bladder catheter insertions during orthopedic or general surgery procedures could be a source of iatrogenic strictures. And we should keep in mind that in developed countries, these iatrogenic strictures are the most frequent ones. Another part of the interview with our patients, especially in those with recurrent strictures, would be assessing prior treatments. Previous endoscopic procedures, like internal urethrotomies or urethral dilatations, should be described, and the symptom-free interval between them should be also noted. Assessing the time for the last instrumentation should be mandatory, as it would be as it as this time. Assessing the time for the last instrumentation should be mandatory, as it would influence the timing for further evaluations or for surgical management. In patients with failed urethroplasties, we would ask as well if they underwent repairs using penile or prepucial flaps. And if oral mucosa was harvest, we would describe the donor site or sites. We should inquire too about complications related with the strictures, like acute urinary retentions, recurrent urinary tract infections, or urethral bleeding. But, but also, if any postoperative problem happened, like wound infections, urinary fistula, or abscess formation. This would be a good time for conducting a physical examination of our patient. We would start by ruling out acute or chronic urinary retention, by suprapubic palpation, or even better, by performing an ultrasound measure of post-void residual urine. And then, penile and perineal area would be examined, and any presence of fistulation would be noted. Urethral tube must be carefully palpated, as any significant induration could be related with fibrosis. Penile scarring, location of the meatus, and presence of or absence of foreskin should be also noted. 
an inflammatory sign or the presence of areas suspicious of lichen sclerosis should be described. And we should discuss with our patient if a preoperative biopsy could be conducted, especially if this finding would change the future management of our patient. As the last part of the clinical examination, when oral mucosal grafts could be required, asking the patient to open his mouth and assessing the oral cavity would be recommended too. Finally, our interview would evaluate the sexual function, if the patient is sexually active, and the consequences of the stricture over it. As complementary tests, aerofluometry should be routinely attended, stepped when there is a complete block of the urethra and a suprapubic catheter is placed. This flow rate test is easy, non-invasive, and cheap. When the voided volume is adequate, which is more than 120 or 150 milliliters of urine, a plateau shape of the voiding curve and a markedly diminished maximum flow rate are the typical findings. To confirm or exclude the presence of a urethral structure, we could conduct a cystoscopy using a flexible or a rigid scope. If a urethroscopy is available, it may allow us to pass the structure to assess it completes length. Even with any of these tools, urethroscopy is an invasive test, uncomfortable for the patient and with potentially some risk of infection or damaging the healthy urethra. Alternatively, we could perform a retrograde urethrography, usually associated with voiding cysto-urethrography, to evaluate the entire urethra. We should be aware of limitations of retrograde urethrography as a tendency to underestimate the stricture length. Conducting both phases of this imaging test, the retrograde urethrography and the voiding cystourethrography, is particularly relevant in nearly obliterative structures, in stenosis of the posterior urethra, and pelvic fracture traumatic lesions. Other imaging modalities as urethral ultrasound, which is also called sonourethrography, or pelvic or urethral MRI, should be only conducted if special required. In patients with anterior urethral structures, and particularly in penile ones, ultrasound of the urethra can accurately assess the length of the affected segment, evaluating also the degree of spondyofibrosis. Conversely, Magnetic resonance imaging is more useful in posterior urethral stenosis, specifically for measuring the length of the distraction defect and for identifying associated pathological features as fistulae, diverticular, or cavitation. The, expect the expectations of our patient with management of his stricture should be also carefully discussed during the last part of our interview. We have to detail the possible benefits and risks of each of the proposed treatment options. The urologist should be able to tailor made the management for each patient. At it is clearly not the same a young and fit patient with a post-hypospedia spinal stricture aiming for a cosmetic and functional repair compared with the same stricture in a patient in his 80s just looking forward for a permanent solution, which could be a perennial urethrostomy formation. 
do we need to follow up with our patients after urethral stricture surgery? The answer is yes. And we have to insist in conducting a regular follow-up for all patients after any urethral stricture treatment in order to detect any complications or recurrences. If we perform endoscopic treatment like internal dilatation or direct vision internal urethrotomy, we have to be aware that the risk of recurrence of the stricture and conduct flow rate analysis accordingly. But even after urethroplasty surgery, which has better long-term outcomes compared with endoscopic management, some follow-up is mandatory. Complications after retroplasty are rarely more severe than, cla than clavian 1 or 2 and are usually urinary tract infections, wound lesions, or infection. But having this sort of minor grade complications could happen in up to 30 to 50% of anterior retroplasties, so we have to be aware of them. Also, stricture recurrence would appear with different frequently depending on stricture features and urethroplasty techniques, but in all contexts are more common in the first year after the surgery. Early recurrences and with early, we are referring to approximately three months after the urethroplasty, represent the 21% of all recurrences and are more frequent in older patients longer strictures like in sclerosis etiology and when a screen graft was used. For valvular retroplasties, the median time for recurrence is around 10 months in most of published series. So during, this first, during the first year, a closer follow-up should be routinely offered. After this time, we propose a risk-adjusted protocol to follow up these patients to avoid excessive cost and save time, both for patients and clinicians. We can consider anastomotic urethroplasties, either transecting or non-transecting techniques in the valvar or valvomembranous segment as low risk of recurrence strictures. If they do not have history of radiotherapy, hypospadias, or lichen sclerosis. For these low-risk patients, we propose a two-year follow-up scheme. Following the retroplasty, after catheter removal, a first visit at three months' time is suggested. At this time, a uroflometry should be performed and the urethral stricture patient reported outcome measure question and another sexual function questionnaires are recommended. The flowmetry values at three months could be established as new baseline ones. So following flow rate tests could be compared with them to detect any impairment in the voiding curve. The literally structured panel suggests performing also an anatomical assessment using a 16 French or 17 French flexible urethroscopy or, or by conducting retrograde urethrography at this point. The rationale for using any of these invasive diagnostic tests during the early follow-up is to rule out subclinical recurrence. Endoscopic assessment at three months can predict the risk for intervention at one year. And we know that restrictors with large caliber, which are larger than 17 French 
and then allow it to pass the scope across them with no problem, have a threefold risk of needing any intervention in the first 12 months if we compare them with endoscopy with no sign of records. And even if the patient is symptom-free, if the detected, the detected structure is of a small caliber, which is less than 16 French, and the scope is impossible to advance, for this patient, the risk of reintervention is multiplied by 23 compared with patients with a normal lumen after the procedure. In the suggested protocol for low risk of recurrence patients, a second follow-up is recommended one year after urethroplasty and a last visit after two years. In these appointments, only urethroplasty and self-administered questionnaires are required, limiting the endoscopic or radiographic assessment for patients with symptoms or with diminished flow rate. And with diminished flow rate, we should consider patients with a maximum flow rate below 15 milliliters per second or if the maximum flow rate descends 10 millimeters per second from the new baseline, which we already explained that was set at three months after urethroblasty. In case everything is fine and we discharge our patient from follow-up at this point, we should advise him to seek urological evaluation if the patients develop any voiding symptoms afterwards. The other group in the risk-adjusted protocol for follow-up proposing the guidelines are the strictures considered with standard risk of recurrence. In this group are included all penile segment urethroplasties along with all augmentation or substitution urethroplasties, either with grafts or flaps or even with a combination of both. Within this group, are also the non-traumatic posterior urethroplasties and the valvular anastomotic repairs in patients with prior radiotherapy, hypospedias, or lichen sclerosis. Like in the low risk of recurrence group, the first follow-up would be at three months after the surgery, and the assessment should include urethrometry in order to establish a new baseline flow rate values and also self-administered questionnaire, including the urethral structure patient reported outcome measure and a sexual function questionnaire. An anatomic evaluation at this point is also recommended, either with urethroscopy or retrograde urethrogram, for the very same reasons of predicting the risk of interventions that we already explained for the low risk of recurrence group. The next follow-up visits could be scheduled for one year and two years after the surgery. And for these patients with a standard risk of recurrence, this follow-up test would include the same evaluations, flowmetry, questionnaires, and anatomic assessment. Another difference, aside of the repeated anatomic evaluation suggested at one and two years, is the proposal of maintaining a longer follow-up period compared with the low risk of recurrence group. A last follow-up visit is suggested after five years from the urethroplasty, just with urethrometry and questionnaires. In this case, endoscopy or imaging are not routinely conducted and only performed 
in patients with a suspected recurrence based on symptoms or based in a drop on their maximum flow rate. <clears throat> An even longer follow-up period could be reasonable in penile and substitution erythroplasties, but if we discharge our patient after five years, it is always a good practice to advise him to seek urological evaluation in case of any voiding symptoms. What should we consider a successful outcome after urethral intervention? That is a particularly tricky question, but with relevance if we want to compare different interventions for a certain structure. For instance, when we discuss with a patient his treatment plan. Traditionally, in the literature, postoperative success after urethroplasty has been considered as the lack of any postoperative intervention for restriction. This definition has two limitations. First, it does not include as failures those cases with asymptomatic or even with symptomatic recurrence in patients not willing to undergo further interventions. And even more, it leaves to the, to the investigators what could be considered such intervention required for considering the initial surgery as a failure. For instance, some groups accept the need for endoscopic treatments as still a success of the urethroplasty and only consider a failure if the patient underwent a redo erythroplasty. A more recent and objective definition, it is named as anatomic success, which is defined as a normal urethral lumen during a urethroscopy using a 16 or 17 French scope or by performing a retrograde urethrography. And this is regardless of patient's presence of or absence of symptoms. This is a far more strict definition and we know that up to 35% of cystoscopic recurrence after valvular urethroplasty remain completely asymptomatic and they therefore would have been considered as a success using the traditional definition of lack of further intervention. But none of these two previous definitions evaluated the patient's perspective. And we know that there are major discrepancies. When questioned, only 78% of patients with clinical success after urethroplasty consider themselves as satisfied or very satisfied. And in the other hand, 80% of patients defined as clinical failures consider themselves as very satisfied with the outcome of their surgery. So, in order to standardize this subjective evaluation, patient reported outcome questionnaires have been developed and validated in many languages. But not only the voiding function could affect the perceived outcomes of the procedure, also, the sexual and erectile function should be evaluated, if possible, using validated questionnaires, as they are a major source of dissatisfaction for our patients. So, in summary, from the urethral structure panel, we suggest saving the strict anatomical criteria for academic purposes and in clinical practice using a more pragmatic and functional definition of success 
namely lack of symptoms and no need for further intervention, which could mean that our patient is satisfied and voiding with no travel, which should be ultimately our purpose with urethroplasty. Thank you for joining Dr. Felix Campos Juanate for this episode of EAU Podcast on diagnosis of urethral strictures and follow-up after urethral surgery. For further information on the EAU guidelines on urethral strictures, please visit our website, www.euroweb.org forward slash guidelines. Further podcasts will be posted regularly on EAU guidelines topics. For more EAU podcasts, please go to your favourite podcast app and subscribe to our EAU podcast channel for regular updates.